Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. What's this? Maybe you remember the project I had with the infinite number of monkeys and the infinite number of typewriters trying to type the works of Shakespeare? Yes. Well, the monkey chow bill was killing me, and I eventually figured, you know, what's the point? If they do it, they're just producing work that's in the public domain and that Ira Glass doesn't even like, so I just got rid of all of them. There's still one here. Yeah, he won't leave. He thinks he's really on to something. It could be the next Fifty Shades of Grey, he says. Okay, let's see what you've got this time. Now, said Baron von Krulhart, it's time to spank the monkey. He put me over his well-muscled thigh and raised his hand. Incredible release in me. I've been a very naughty monkey. Found my inner goddess. Baby oil, sweatpants, never felt so desired. This is good. I didn't think a monkey could write this well. You're sure this is all original, not plagiarized? Okay, I'm just going to ask you to sign this paper. It waives your copyright and makes clear that this work is for hire, which I own. (coughs) Fine, have your lawyer call me. (coughs) Ross Garber? Uh, He's pretty good. All the same, buzz off. Eh, You could have handled that better. Don't tell me my business. I provided the monkey house, the monkey chow, the monkey bed, the monkey vitamin water, the monkey iPod loaded with songs by the monkeys. And what does he do? Write a couple of pages of hot porn for housewives and I have to hand him the keys to my BMW? I'll see his little hairy butt in court. Today on the nose, the movie Boyhood, the war over spanking, and yes, the copyright battle over a monkey selfie. And now the movie about his boyhood was shut down when the Spanish-American War broke out. Colin McEnroe. I don't even want to talk about that. It it dashed a lot of dreams I had. Yes, welcome to the news. Special Ape Not Instagram Ape Edition. We'll be talking about Richard Linklater's precedent-breaking movie Boyhood, in which he used 12 years to shoot the fictional story of a young man coming of age and then move on to those other topics later. Let me introduce our panel. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer's Boyhood would have been the stuff of movies if he had spent less time as a debate nerd, as chronicled in his book, Weisenheimer, and more time speculating about the meaning of life. He writes a bi-weekly beliefs column for the New York Times, also reports for The Atlantic, The Nation, This American Life, and uh, this summer he is guest editing uh, because of maternity leave. Uh, he is the guest editor of Tablet, the online Jewish publication. Uh, certainly uh, jump online and read uh, his fabulous work or at least send him an angry email without having read anything. Speaking of maternity leave, Tracy Wu Fastenberg is returning to the news after a lengthy, lengthy uh, maternity leave and broken ankle, uh, better known as the movie National Lampoon's Summer Lactation. Uh, she has <laughs> sold the film rights to her baby of her baby to Clint Eastwood. Uh, she works at the Mark Twain House of Pancakes. Um, almost everything can be improved by the addition of of pancakes. 
Movies about James Hanley's boyhood very quickly come to resemble the Pelican Brief as he is pursued through a series of dimly lit parking garages by international oligarchs who know he will grow up to be a threat to their ruthless agendas. He runs Trinity Cine Studio. Uh, so that's our panel today. We are going to begin with the movie Boyhood, which we've all seen. Richard uh, Linklater, the director, was never a stickler for plot. A lot of his movies, especially the Before Sunrise trilogy with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, are mainly people talking. His newest film, Boyhood, is a lot of that, but also a lot more. People who like this movie really like it. America's Greatest Living Film critic David Edelstein wrote this, I'm not saying Boyhood is the greatest film I've ever seen, but I'm thinking there's my life before I saw it and my life now, and it's different. I know movies can do something that just last week I didn't. They can make time visible. So I'm curious to know what our panel thought. Uh, Api, uh, why don't you get us started? Pick a vector and sure. we'll, we'll follow you. I'm a huge I'm a huge Linklater fan, though not the before sunrise, sunset, whatever those are, which I find not very gripping. But um, Dazed and Confused was a really, really, really important movie for me. Um, though the first time I saw it, I, I didn't remember it. <laughs> I, I was just, I mean, I'll be honest, I was, it was in college and I'd had a lot to drink before I went. And you were I, dazed and confused. I was, but it wasn't that. It was that, this is a somewhat embarrassing story, I had to go to the bathroom so many times during it. <laughs> um, and I was on a date. That's the a, nerd version of dazed and confused. Right. I was on a date with a very, 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 very beautiful woman. And I was very excited for it. And I said, let's go to the Med School Film Society. This was at Yale. And uh, they had you know prints of these new movies right around the time they were released. And I just had to get up and, and go to the bathroom so many times that I never, I thought there was a plot that I was just missing. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I saw on video a couple years later, they realized, no, I hadn't actually missed a plot. But I've become a huge devotee of, of that movie, and I'm not the kind of person who says that I'm a devotee. You know, I don't talk that way about myself, but it, I love that movie very, very much. I loved School of Rock, which of course did have a plot. I think Linklater's a very, very fine filmmaker. I expected this movie because, I expected Boyhood because I'm a compulsively nostalgic person who tends to get weepy at anything that reminds me of the week before last uh, to destroy me. It didn't destroy me. I thought it was really, 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 really good. Um, And I thought it was, you know, a kind of breathtakingly original thing to do and the kind of thing where you think, how did no one ever do this before? Uh, That said, I'm surprised by Edelstein's reaction to it. I like his criticism as well. And it didn't do that to me in the way that it did that to him. So I'd be curious to hear from people who were destroyed by it like that. All right. Uh, if you were destroyed by it or not <laughs> just destroyed by it, you may call us at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Just to make sure we're setting the scene properly, this is a movie. It is about the life of a boy named Mason. Uh, it takes him across uh, about a t- roughly, I think, a 12-year arc, which is how long uh, Linklater spent making the movie. In other words, he allotted 12 years, uh, and uh, as everybody, including him, dove in and out of other projects, he would come back to this movie and shoot another phase of it. So you roughly see, I think, from about the age of seven to the, about the age of 19, I'm guessing, uh, the story of this boy, Mason, as he goes through a series of schools. Uh, his mother goes through a series of marriages. His father uh, appears magically now and again to, to do very entertaining and sustaining things, but doesn't do the nitty-gritty day day work of uh, bringing him up. Uh, and uh, towards the end, we see him uh, heading off to college and a whole series of other adventures. So, uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, um, I'm just sort of going around the horn first and just sort of seeing, I mean, did this movie work for you? What, what did work or didn't work for you? I liked the concept of it. So going into it when you said, hey, we're going to go see Boyhood, I'm like, that's the only movie this summer that I'm actually interested in seeing because it was such a different way to approach it with the same actor every year for 12 years where you can see him growing up. And I loved the idea of it. 
I still haven't decided if I actually liked the movie. I didn't dislike it, but it didn't slay me. It didn't really move me to a whole other level. And um, about two hours in, I thought it was over. And for the next 45, 50 minutes, I kept on sort of hoping it was over. Um, It just seemed very lengthy. The dialogue wasn't as scintillating as I wanted it to be, but it also wasn't so natural that you kind of got lost in it and felt like you were just eavesdropping on somebody's conversation because there was some stiltingness to it that wasn't quite natural. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I'm sort of I'm sort of an eighty percent right now at liking it. All right, which is well below its uh, Rotten Tomato score. <laughs> its Rotten Tomato score is ninety nine percent favorable yeah. critical critical reception, which you don't see that often. All right, James, you have the floor. Well, I I, I have to say I was completely absorbed by the film, uh, even its full hundred sixty minute length. Um, I one of the things that fascinates me about uh, Richard Linklater is that he is a person who's seems to have had a very satisfying sort of intellectual life, making films, writing films, engaging on what seems like an impossible project, taking 12 years to make a film with a plan to a certain extent, but also taking an enormous risk that the participants would actually be willing to continue um, his own daughter, I think, at some point. She, was, pro- she, she was probably a safer bet, right? I mean, <laughs> well, no, well, no, no she, she wasn't. She actually said she, she wanted to be killed off yeah. and so that oh she would gosh. be in it. But then she changed her mind. But what is fascinating? She plays there, the big sister of the yes. boy. That's right. right. That's right. And um, I think that she's actually a very pivotal character. I mean, uh, I, I think that she really is important in terms of her contrast in character development. But again, the thing that R- Richard Linklater brings is a sort of complete insouciance about the market. And there's no marketing being in this film, really. And I've, I was struck by the thing that at the end of the movie, I, you always sit through the credits. And as I was sitting through the credits, I was looking for the uh, – just – I knew what how the film was made, that it was this, it was following the same person. But I was looking for the different characters being played at different ages. Mm. And then I suddenly thought, wait a minute. What am I looking for that for? Yeah. <laughs> and it sort of reminded me of how this film crosses the boundaries – and it almost has a sort of a documentary quality, but it completely lifts out of that with a conceptual sense of development and how crises affect people differently, how how people some people sort of cruise along and then they fall apart. Some there are clues to characters that appear since it's real people over 12 years. The clues have real significance because you get to see what did those clues mean Four, five, six, eight years on. Yeah, I, I think it was Manola Dargis in the Times said she watched it three times. And uh-huh. I, I want to go back and watch it again. I, too, yeah. was very, very absorbed. Again, it didn't slay me, but I was very absorbed. I, there was something I loved about it internal to it and something I loved about the process. Internally, I want to say Linklater's very good on that slice of America that is working class or just a little bit above. Yeah. The mom in this, you know, she – finishes college, then she seems to get a master's, then she seems to be some sort of adjunct, and they're still poor, which of course is entirely possible in the world of American academia. Mm -hmm. Uh, The husbands come and go, and the kid eventually gets off to state university, which is going to be his salvation. And that's Mm -hmm. a really interesting thing to say in a movie, which is, hey, if you sort of hang in there and keep doing your your work, and maybe you can aspire to go to state U. I mean, and that's that's not a slice of American life that gets enough attention. Uh, And of course, it's it's completely normative for tens of millions of people. Um, The other thing I would say is the process, you know, it it was like two or three 
three days a summer for 12 summers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder to those of us who do creative work, like a little bit at a time really does add up. Yeah. Yeah. And people did incredible work in this movie. You sort of wonder maybe actors would be better in general, you know, if you use them that way instead of the way that we use them. Well, I've got a whole bunch of things that I want to talk about. One of them, the first one I wanted to talk about was um, the title. Uh, and I, initially, it seems as though the, the title does apply solely to this character played by L.R. Coltrane. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's Mason. He's the boy we're watching growing up. But the more I watched this movie, I thought, no, it's really kind of about all the men in this movie, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. it, it, absolutely. It, it, it absolutely is about all the men and about sort of male issues uh, and, and how men figure out their roles. So Ethan Hawke does play this kind of wandering uh, father who's in and out of his kids' lives. But I mean, I've basically seemed like a very nice and appealing person. Uh, but And, in, and in ends the, up selling insurance of all things. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and in that sort of classic post-divorce divide, you know, he's just not doing the daily work. He shows up, you know, for the bowling trip, the camping trip, uh, all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, even like these little characters, like his brother who we see for, you know, two minutes uh, mm -hmm. at a graduation party, also expressing, I mean, the, the, the portrait of maleness was not an entirely flattering one, but I think he kind of lays out a lot of inter interesting men's issues there. Who wants to take that one away from me? Well, I think that that's a really important aspect of the movie because the uh, issue, uh, it, what what you're really focused on is L.R. Coltrane, uh, Mason, uh, as he is developing and what he's reading from all these characters around him, like a failed stepfather, for example, and you know, the, the the telegraphing of what that means and why he's failing and why other men seem to be failing. And one of the curious paradoxes, Ethan Hawke's character, his father, is really, in in many ways, he succeeds in spite of himself. Mm -hmm. And he is, a, uh, he is a person who really seems to maintain a hold uh, in, in Mason's life. But there's a, I don't want to spoil the story, but there's a point at which he actually fails at that, quite obviously. And um, it's an interesting statement about how what you expect about people and what you expect about people you look up to, sometimes you can be surprised about that. And in a way, I think that that actual moment makes Mason a more believable character because he's actually becoming aware of flaws in a way that he had taken very personally. And then he comes out of that and develops out of that. And again, that seems to me to be part of the process of making a film over such a long time that you can really ponder these things and how these characters will come out. And Richard Linklater is a sort of person who does kind of ramble at times, you know, like the the uh, before sunrise type of thing that is a lot of talk. I, I actually found those interesting. But the, the issue is um, sometimes if you're getting that all together and the whole film is that, it sometimes obscures the character development that would actually inform that discussion. And that's what happens in uh, Boyhood, I think, is that you get both. And that's why, to me, it's so absorbing and interesting. I thought a lot about men's responsibilities and how they sort of approach it. You know, that first boyfriend that the mother has is like, well, my friends are expecting me. Like, that's my responsibility, not to stay here with you and your kids. Yeah. And then as you go through kind of her, the different men that she's with, um, the first, the, the professor who happened to be an alcoholic, you know, he saw it that he provided for everyone, but they owed him. They owed him respect. Yeah. They owed him um, whatever it, it was that you know, ticked him off over time, um, obedience and doing chores and stuff. And then um, the, the veteran that she married later on was very bitter about the fact that he was supposed to provide for these kids that weren't his, that, you know, didn't, didn't pay attention to him and come home on curfew. And then his father, who saw his responsibility as more 
being there. You know, he, he understood what they should have been in sort of a materialistic aspect of, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not here. He tried to make up for it. He pulled over to the side of the road and said, we need to have real conversations. Mm-hmm. We need to have a relationship. He just didn't know how quite to get there. But I think he understood more of what a child needs than some of these other men. And so I, I thought it was a nice kind of dichotomy as you went through them all. If you saw Boyhood and you want to uh, join this conversation, again, 860-275-7266. Or if you just refuse to see two hours and 45 minutes worth of movies in which uh, – a movie in which really not that many major plot points occur. Although we could debate that, though. Uh, you may tweet us also at WNPR, Colin. Who was ja- James, are there, are there other examples you can think of of director-actor collaborations as sustained – as Ethan Hawke and Richard Linklater. I mean, he's used him in at least four movies, yeah. and, and I love that he keeps using him. Ethan Hawke's not my favorite actor, but mm-hmm. I think he gets good performance out of him, and I think in this movie, that was the character that actually almost brought me to tears because mm-hmm. the, the to see him kind of gradually accept that, that life is not about driving a fast car and having fun and that he has to start wearing Dockers and, <laughs> and provide well, was very heartbreaking. The other thing that's really <laughs> uncanny, and Rand Cooper was with me last night when I saw the movie, uh, is, and he pointed it out, was that, you know, we watch everybody age for real. In other words, we're watching everybody sort of get older. Right. And, and, you, and it's noticeable on everybody, except that for the first, like, eight or nine of the 12 years, Ethan Hawke does <laughs> not age at all. Exactly and the then, same. Yeah, in real life, <laughs> Ethan Hawke just wasn't getting older. And then there's, like, a little kind of Dor- Dorian Gray spurt at the end. I there, wonder but. if they sort of grade up his temples at the end to make that point. If, I mean, Ethan Hawke's... He's a pretty youthful-looking guy. But, I mean, what about that collaboration? Well, I I think that really is unusual. And I think that Ethan Hawke is an unusual actor in that I think a lot of actors presented with that possibility would probably see their careers at a different point. Like, you know, six years down the line, an actor may have seen his career having having crossed to some different kind of uh, appearance or different kind of film that he's making. Ethan Hawke seems to be, I mean, that was the uncanny thing about this film all the way through. That sort of almost documentary quality. It's crossing that that barrier where the character could actually be a fictional character in a movie who's developing, who actually comes across in a way that is documentarian about what is going on. And I think that he is a person who, he just seems to be unpretentious, I think, which is why I like him as an actor, because he is able to do this and not see it as somehow... Um, about him because the character he becomes that character and he takes that time to actually develop through the film and he's still at the end of the movie he's not some sort of you know like stereotype he's really gone through all sorts of changes Um, and in a way um, L.R. Coltrane is following the same trajectory in a different time of his life and he's coming out at the end of it there's a sort of the expression on his face at the end, just before the fade out, said that to me about that. And I thought that's something that Richard Linklater somehow divines really exactly right. I want to make sure we also talk about women in this movie uh, and and particularly about Patricia Arquette, who's getting rave notices for her performance. Uh, it's a different kind of experience than watching Ethan Hawke. You really do see her age. You see all kinds of things happen. This would have been shot probably between her ages of 43 and uh, 33 and 46. Uh, it included, I think, some pregnancies and maybe uh, not uh, immediately losing the weight from those pregnancies. So you see her body uh, change in, in lots of different ways too. But um, uh, at least one writer that I saw said you could just as easily have called this movie motherhood. It really is, um, at times anyway, her story. And it, it's 
It's a really, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm looking over at you as our, <laughs> as our designated woman here. But to me, it's a really wrenching portrait of a woman, too, a woman who mm-hmm. is trying to do that that work as a single mom and, and making a lot of really bad decisions, but also doing some pretty marvelous things with herself. I don't know. How did, how did that character play for you? I was actually surprised by it, how much I liked her, even though at certain times it seemed like she was sort of disengaged by, you know, hooking up with these these gentlemen who were really not the best for her, not the best for her children, and not seeing it right away. But I think that that's very natural. I think that, you know, probably for men in bad relationships with women too, you know, you, you just don't see that reality until a certain point. But she does all the things that she thinks is right for her family, for her children throughout it. And I think one of the saddest points is sort of when he's heading off to school and she's like, and, and here I am, you know, I dedicated my life to all this stuff and she felt like she didn't have a whole lot to show for it. And I sort of wonder if that's a little commentary on some of the women who want it all. I, I read that line differently when she sort of starts sobbing. He's about to, go, about to go off to college the next day or the next week and she says, you know, I thought there'd be more. And I think it's that she feels she what inevitably people feel when their kids leave, which is, wait, where did it go? You One know, time I miss. With I, him. I, yeah, like I, I didn't think that. I think it was about just she, her boy's about to go off to college, and her daughter's already there, and then she's going to be in her little apartment, and she's single again, and she has her adjunct course load, and what else? But I think it was just that I can't believe my boy's leaving, which was which was terrific. I think that she's a very in- interesting character in that way because actually, although she's picking up these uh, different men that she feels need to be a father to her kids and they turn out to be not necessarily such good fathers, I think that one of the things is that she, meanwhile, all of that is going on, she becomes the most loyal parent, as it were, almost taking on the father and the mother mm-hmm. role, that she really is making that her life. And then at the at, toward the end, when he's leaving to go to college, I think um, it's it almost in the context of the film, it almost comes across as a sort of momentary thing about was this the right thing? Almost like I, I completely sort of mortgaged my life really to what I felt I needed to do, and then they're leaving, kind of thing. And she's losing sight of the fact that she's actually got two pretty like secure kids who are coming out of it. And, and But isn't that a sort of natural reaction you have when you've put all of that energy? That's what parenthood is. That, yeah, exactly. They leave and yeah. you have, you know, what you have to show for it is that they don't need you anymore. Yeah, exactly. I, I also saw this as, and I'm not a Linklater guy, and I've kind of, you know, kind of avoided those after sunset before. I, mean, I just, you know, I'm not a Linklater guy. <laughs> but I, first of all, I, I just, I haven't said it yet. I was absolutely mesmerized by this movie. The two hours and 45 minutes flew by for me. I didn't need it to end any sooner. Uh, I feel it is, the movie I would compare it to in some ways is Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, but this is a much more accessible, approachable movie. It, it, it's not going to scare people away the way that movie did, as good as that movie is. But um, one of the things that, that I marvel at is Linklater's absolute fastidious avoidance of big moments, you know, the kinds yeah. of big moments we are now almost Pavlovianly conditioned to expect, right? You're watching these movies. Now I'm watching this movie and there's a car driving down the highway and I think, well, they're going to have a car accident, you know, <laughs> or – I thought someone was going to end up gay. Yeah. So, well, I did, I did think Ethan Hawke was did, gay for a while. Yeah, did you? I did, I did yeah. I uh, thought the son was going to – I thought Mason was going to have a gay experience. But, you know, you keep reading for these big reveals or a kind of a moment of violence. There's a guy breaking a board. 
board, you think, well, somebody's going to wind up in intensive care or something. Right. That, that doesn't happen. And, and it, it, it's, the movie is spellbinding nonetheless. And, and I do think that sometimes the things that are jarring about this have less to do with what Linklater is doing and more to do with what we are conditioned to expect yeah. will happen in a movie. Exactly. And so even this, that last scene we're talking about, or penultimate scene where Patricia Arquette, uh, she's saying goodbye to her son, just kind of dissolves into this moment of self-pitying bitterness. I think initially I thought, well, this just plays wrong with me. It's not really working. And then I'm thinking, no, I'm just very conditioned to expect that that scene where the son goes off to college <laughs> is going to be played in a different way. And he's just not going to do that. He's not, he, he's not giving me all the things that I'm used to consuming like pap. You know, I mean, and and I, I admire this movie so much, but I don't think the movie is a chore at all. I, I just, I, I, I'm almost hard pressed to say why it's so incredibly engrossing. But, but I found it. I just was hanging on every, every moment of it. Yeah, I should say that although it didn't. It was at 90 percent for me, Tracy, but I really <laughs> want to see it again. I mean and that's – and I don't want to see anything again. I'm not the kind of person who rewatches stuff. I don't reread books. Like mm-hmm. to want to see it again was a, was really mm-hmm. um, big for me and uh, – no, I, I, I but I am a Linklater guy. So it's not as big as it is for Colin who has <laughs> described himself as not a Linklater guy. Not, not a Linklater <laughs> guy. I mean I'm aware of the fact that uh, – to use Rand's phrase from last night. Occasionally he's quoting his own movies. Uh, you know, there's sort of a scene where I think they're on top of a parking garage or something in Austin looking at the sunrise and you're thinking, well, yeah, okay, we saw that movie. Well, there's okay. a great Say Anything yeah. reference when they're all hanging out with the older boys and then one of them says, well, like, if you're so cool and know so much about women, why are you hanging out with us? Right. Yes. And that's directly yes. from behind the gas and sip and yeah. Say Anything, which yeah. Yeah. Made, my ni- made my night. Um, right. Very quickly before we run out of time, I think we do have to say one more thing maybe or I'd love to hear you guys a little bit. Just on the way, I mean, time really is a character in this movie or it's the ultimate special effect. That's what I find myself thinking that, you know, you're watching these things. And as James yeah. says, another thing we're conditioned to do is to say, oh, yeah, who plays the young Mason? Or no, it's like always the same person. And they're, you know, and he doesn't call attention to it. Sometimes you have to watch a little bit carefully. You notice, oh, wait a minute, the hair cuts a little bit mm-hmm. different or somebody's driving a different car. You suddenly realize we've gone ahead one more year. But it's not like these big slides are coming across the screen saying two years later. Uh, but what's happening, though, is you watch time writing on all of their faces and their bodies, and especially this boy. You know, this the, they didn't have to do anything, any you know, makeup or, or anything right. like that. Just yeah. the way time writes on this kid, it, it is fascinating. To watch. It is as dramatic an upheaval, <laughs> just watching stuff happen in a very, the normal course of time, as anything I could think of. I think that that's something that is very special to Linklater in this case, being very successful at that, because so many films that look at uh, things happening over time, I mean, it can range from things like having voiceovers or uh, title slugs that say, you know, the time has passed, or otherwise very dramatic remake-ups of somebody or somebody else playing the part. And one of the things, uh, touching on what you said, Colin, about expectations, I think the film is full of uh, almost sort of like games that Linklater is playing by sort of leading you to a place where you think you know you know, what the transition is, or you think that, you know, this idea that maybe the car is going to crash or something is playing with the notion of the way movies, many movies are made, which are punctuated by dramatic events that turn the narrative one way or another. And it's focusing you back on the whole idea of actually paying attention to these details and paying attention to one of the other fascinating things is how how, uh, Patricia Arquette 
changes her reaction to the husband, the college professor who starts who's drinking. Um, her her subtle reaction there. You have to pay attention to the expressions and the things she's doing in the house and stuff like that. And I love to sort of tease that apart. And I think it is a film that yields to seeing more than once, absolutely, so that you can sort of see how those things went together. And maybe it is a function of the length of the time that, that he was working on it, but also a good writer who's thinking. I mean, he's obviously had it in his head the whole 12 years. All right. It's, uh, it's Boyhood. It's playing at major motion picture houses, multiverses, whatever they're called, uh, in uh, some smaller places as well. I'm sure it will come to Trinity Cine Studio, and then you can watch it four nights in a row on very good equipment and on a very big screen. But if you can't wait, uh, see it now. It got an 80 from uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg and 90 from Mark Oppenheimer. I think James and I are both pretty close to 99% on this one. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about spanking. We're going to talk about monkeys. We're not going to talk about the two of them together, though, after this. We're all here, the children waiting. We're all here, and time is a wasting, just like it should. Just like my boyhood. We're all here. So, when we do the nose, what we do is we send emails back and forth, and it all gets very complicated and convoluted. You have to make sure you read all the emails. And sometimes I'm not even sure where certain topics kind of come in, but then they're sort of, they've been on eight emails in a row and they sort of become topics. So, we had a whole bunch of ideas this week about what we would talk about. Somehow or other, spanking. I think actually Kion Wolf started this, uh, but I I could be wrong. Somehow or other, we got uh, spanking on our email. Uh, And and I think uh, it probably stems from a couple of different things. Corporal punishment has been kind of in the news lately. partly because uh, of a New York court ruling that decided that a father had not abused his son by spanking him. Uh, this um, also has sort of occasioned a lot of uh, writing about uh, spanking and, and uh, bringing forth of some of the scientific evidence about spanking, uh, some of which suggests that it either doesn't work very well or might even be uh, in odd ways dangerous for your child. But it also kind of uh, touched off this kind of, I don't know, culture war, war on Christmas thing. The uh, National Review was basically saying that just uh, if there's been a war on Christmas, there's also been a war on spanking and that liberals don't like it and it's banned in places like Sweden and, and Delaware, which are basically probably the same place. And, um, Delaware and, has more banks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, it would, be a, it would be a close race as to who has more banks. So um, – uh, on the other hand, according to the National Review, roughly 80 percent of parents admit to hitting their children, uh, but they may not, may not be far off, they write breathlessly, when giving a child a quick slap on the rear for misbehavior will get a parent labeled a child abuser. So anyway, it's, it's all in front of us. We don't really have time for a lengthy conversation about spanking, uh, but uh, we'll uh, start it off with uh, the tiger mom-to-be, Tracy Wu <laughs> Fastenberg. Uh, that tiny little baby I know has not been spanked yet. But not even a little. So. Yeah. Just lots of kisses. Um, when Kyan brought that up, it actually made me really think because it's something that my husband and I have talked about. But one of the things that Kyan had said in her email was, you know, when it came down to it, if my child was being, you know, really horrific, you know, haven't made that decision yet. And so it, it kind of brought me to the place of, well, you know, what would be my recourse if if suddenly Claire decided that she was being awful, you know, when she hits a, a certain age and, and size? Um and I still have to sit there and say, no, there, there's absolutely not a chance that I would raise a hand to my child, no matter even if she was bigger than I was. Um, you know, the the CNN article, I think it was CNN, indicated that uh, there's a lack of gray matter. There, there's less gray matter in children who are struck. Um, and I think that they were talking specifically more about paddles and belts, which I was horrified to think that anybody's still using that. 
um, you know, whether it's a, a parent's right to spank their child, I I can't make that decision for them. So I guess everybody has their own right. But for me personally, it's just not an option. Well, now, Mark Oppenheimer has lots and lots of children. And there's some kind of Spanish word that he gave us for a man. One of the things that made him an interesting uh, uh, guest on the subject of boyhood is that he has only daughters. What is the Spanish word for the man? He's who, a chancletero, which is a, 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 sl- a slipper man, a slipperisto, a man in slippers, is a Caribbean and Nor- uh, Venezuelan, Colombian, that region of the Caribbean um, Spanish slang for a man who has only daughters. Yeah, so you have so, only daughters. Only daughters. Uh, four of them. Haven't hit them yet. Uh, long-time listener. First time. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. Have you back in a year or two. Uh, the eldest is seven. Um, he, look, here's the thing about, about corporal punishment. I'm less interested in, in judging the person who has spanked a child, um, or even on great occasion, than I am in thinking about what it does to the parent, which is that it coarsens you. And um, I don't want to be the kind of person who uses violence. And I think the more you use it, the easier it gets to use it, just like the more you go to war, the easier it gets to go to war the next time. And um, you don't want to be in a household where there are people who are giving in to their violent tendencies except the really little people who don't have that great self-control. So that's that's sort of the way I, I feel about it. I've, I've had a friend argue back before in college. I had an argument with someone who's like, yeah, but if you don't – if my parents hit me and if they hadn't, I would have turned out a delinquent or something. And I think that among parents who hit, they actually sort of believe their kids turn out better than kids who aren't hit. They actually have a claim they're making, which is hitting is regrettable, but look at all the bad people. They weren't beaten enough as kids. And I just think there's no reason to believe that. I think the, exactly the reverse is true, actually. I I'm, think I'm that, sure. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Um, I, I, I think that the issue really is power and unfair power. And uh, you're, if you're hitting a child uh, as an adult, it's a totally untenable lesson that you're teaching to a child about the superior power and then adding physical pain to it, physical power. I think it, it's just totally, you know, it, it doesn't go anywhere. That's a, that's an unfair exploitation. I mean, uh, maybe spanking for, you know, bank CEOs and, you know, public TV shows. With it. <laughs> I'm all I think about that. would be that. great. <laughs> I, I, I think there we, we were onto something. Uh, and we've managed to have this conversation so far without mentioning Daphne Merkin. But um, <laughs> so um, – I, so I'll, I'll tell a quick story here because I just I, uh, having been on because it's your show. Long, it's Colin. my show. And, <laughs> no, this is a story that does not reflect entirely well on me. But uh, my life is an open book at this point. There's there's no hope. So uh, I grew up. I mean, excuse me. I re- helped raise a, a young boy who was uh, quite frequently. I think by his own admission today, he would tell you he was rebellious. Uh, whatever he could possibly think of something to rebel against, uh, and sometimes even when he couldn't. And but I was sort of determined not to spank him, not to raise my hand against him, not to strike him, and I managed never to do that. But it was very difficult and there were lots of times when I wanted to. And so I substituted this other thing that, that we came to call – and there was a term for it in the house. and It was called alpha wolfing. And what I would do was <laughs> I, would, I would put him on his back and then I would, I would press down on his – hold him down, press, pressing down on his chest and I would get my face very close to him and sometimes I would growl at him. Uh, <laughs> and so – Were um, you in custom? Yeah. So – and one of the difficulties of having any kind of innovative parenting strategy like that one, um, w- whether it works or not, is um, that your son will talk about it in school eventually because he also <laughs> – he doesn't know also that it's completely unique to his household. Right. So he'll be talking in class and he'll say, well, yeah, but I was alpha wolf for that. <laughs> and, and, and then the teachers and the other students will say, you were what? And he goes, I was alpha wolfed. And then he'll have to explain what alpha wolfing is. And That's like the Friends episode where it turns out that, that Monica and Ross have a special family uh, symbol for giving the finger. And to them it means you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's right. equivalent. Yeah. It's co-equal. But only in their family did they – do that gesture rather than 
But I sort of wondered, I mean, I was once we sort of got onto this and I, I read some more stuff about it and there's clinical literature that suggests, among other things, that spanking doesn't work, that they've really even studied uh, situations where children are spanked for a specific kind of behavior. They return to that behavior after 10 minutes. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it apparently doesn't even sort of get the message across. But I, I, I was sort of both surprised and unsurprised to be immediately able to find uh, a, a national publication like the National Review that that was seeing this and there's there's more evidence of this as essentially a political issue like what would you sort of think about all the things that can be politicized which i guess turns out to be everything i i think that's a function of some sort of new software we haven't learned about yet that is detecting issues you know detecting partisan issues <laughs> the ability to actually sort of it, they they check it every morning at it's the an national app. review it's an app it's an app it's an app right they have it yeah it's an app now so you can just check and see does this well, does spanking have potential to be partisan and so if it does if it says yes you go with it. <laughs> there's there's the there's the the spine of a reasonable political argument there, which is that you know the less the state is in your household, the better. Which I think is something that people on the left feel about sexual freedoms, but people on the right feel it about hitting kids. Mm-hmm. And, but I think they're both right. Actually, I mean, I really you know I I don't actually want the state superintending my disciplinary procedures, except in the most egregious uh, circumstances. So imagine I, what I, well, I would have gotten for Alpha Wolf. Alpha. I mean, that's. <laughs> How do you categorize yeah, that? Right away, it yeah. sounds like a strange practice. It's kind well, of Appalachian. Watch out, you're in the National <laughs> Review app already. Colin. Right, and it's this is a Pandora's box that I don't necessarily want to open right now. But there's 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 also sort of a whole cultural component to this, right? I mean, in fact, there's a uh, there's a classic and I have to say very funny comedy routine which you can find on YouTube by a guy named I think Russell Peters. He's Canadian and he's Indian, East Indian American, uh, or East Indian Canadian or something anyway. And it, uh, it's usually called White People. You've got to start hitting your kids. And, and it's all about how white people don't hit their kids, but, you know, people from his culture do. And uh, and and I don't really know how fair that argument is. Of course, he's a comedian. He doesn't have to be fair. Uh, but but it's an interesting way in which to sort of that one's played out. I, I think if you do go across cultures. Well, Oprah used to do a lot on this. I mean, yeah. she would do whole shows. Uh, she did a number when uh, of shows when I was a teenager in which she was talking to the black audience about the culturally specific right. dimensions yeah. of corporal yeah. punishment. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very real topic. All right. So we have to switch topics here and because uh, we are time is limited i did say that this was the official uh, special ape not instagram ape uh, edition of uh of the news. Uh, Slate.com, one of the many publications Mark Oppenheimer writes for, uh, writes, you have to feel for David Slater. In 2011, the British photographer traveled to Indonesia to take pictures of the crested black macaque, a snouty primate with reddish, somewhat possessed-looking eyes. During the expedition, fortune struck when, in the words of the Telegraph, one of the animals came up to investigate his equipment, hijacked a camera, and took hundreds of selfies. Now, Slater is in a fight with the Wikimedia Foundation, which has posted his photo online. He got one in... This ape got one picture of itself that is fabulous. I mean, you, you, it is just a fabulous. I wish I had that good of a selfie yeah, of myself. It is a fabulous picture. Uh, the Wikimedia Foundation has posted the photo online in a collection of public domain images and refuses to take it down. It argues that Slater doesn't own the picture's copyright because he didn't take the picture. The monkey did. And since the monkey can't own the rights, nobody does. Uh, Slater says that, that trip cost me about two thousand pounds for the monkey shot for that monkey shot, not to mention the five thousand of equipment I carry, the insurance, the computer stuff I use to process the images. Photography is an expensive profession that's being encroached upon. They're taking our livelihoods away, uh, and now, of course, it's even worse. Uh, monkeys uh, can uh, take your livelihood away. So, <laughs> I. 
I don't know whether we're at sort of a dawn of the planet of the ape selfies moment here, whether this is like uh, – although, I mean, the issue of copyright is really fascinating. And when Slate and some of the other publications that have covered this sort of looked at it, it sort of looked as though maybe Wikimedia is in better shape to make their case than, than David Slater is, that it might really be the case that if an ape grabs your camera and takes a selfie, it's just not yours anymore. But it's a, I don't know. Does, does anybody have a reaction to all this? James, you have to have a reaction. <laughs> well, I was thinking that they, um, the, that, that in, in this particular case, I mean, certainly the fact that the monkey, the monkey seems self-aware. That's sort of, you know, like, like disturbing enough. Smiling <laughs> and everything. It's I smiling. Mean, yes, it's like smiling. <laughs> so I think we might need to get comments from the monkey. But um, the, the, the whole thing about uh, – it brings up this whole thing about what uh, – one of the legal arguments is that, well, the monkey is an animal and animals are property. And, so, and therefore, you know, they can't hold a copyright. They can't, they can't actually be able to um, exert the right to control and, the, and therefore uh, – and David Slater is saying that, oh, well, I should get the right as a result, which I think is absurd. But I think that um, the monkey itself being property brings up a whole question about the status of – it's kind of like what we were talking about too with, with spanking children. I mean children the, – the whole concept of children having independent rights as human beings and, uh, and, and how animals are treated. I mean it's kind of joking reference when you have a monkey taking a selfie. But it's kind of opened the so, door to – So you're saying the monkey actually should – it's not that nobody owns the rights. The monkey owns the – Absolutely. Own the right, yeah. right, and right. the monkey has not relinquished those rights no, to Wikimedia yet. Exactly. That's and right. my favorite is that the monkey, which is arguably closer to a human being perhaps, you know, yeah, not yeah. a person – but a corporation is a person. There you in are. Some exactly. It goes full circle. Yeah. Exactly. And, there and, are then, gonna, there and are... then the fact that we don't spank the corporate I spanked CEOs. <laughs> I spanked <laughs> apes. Yeah. 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 It had to go there. <laughs> Someone was I going to say ape. that. <laughs> so um, now, see, so yeah, that caused me to lose my train Sorry. of thought. Oh, uh, there, there are cases working their way through the court system, right? Uh, I think we are going to see one of the things that I would predict over the next decade is the sorting out of the rights of animals is going at a sort of Peter Singer level is going to happen more and more. And the whole there will be more and more case law that you could then in a, in a future situation like this retrospectively look at and say, oh, well, you know, actually monkeys do maybe have a little bit more standing. I think right now the monkey has no standing. Right. There's no way the monkey can – National can Review own. will love that. Yes, the monkeys absolutely. have standing. <laughs> I mean, right. Look, so much of this does come back to power. I actually think yeah, this, exactly, is, this is very exactly similar, which right. is – and yeah. you know, my, my friend, the political philosopher Corey Robin wrote a whole book that said that essentially the, the, the conservative impulse is about power. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly. about money specifically. That if you really what, – what, what all of the different conservative impulses have in common is a desire to locate power among the people who want power. Right. And that's how – with the conservative response to labor, to organized labor, to animals, to children, to women's reproductive rights, that really what they have in common is, the, is trying to keep power in, in the hands of the and people who have it. And not be challenged. And not be challenged. And I think, you know, as a vegetarian, I think there's no question that applies to to a general conservative impulse toward animal rights. Yeah, I agree. We'll we'll stop there. (laughs) We'll take a break. (laughs) We'll come back. We'll endorse things. Uh, You'll stay with us, please. We'll be back after this. Okay, okay, I'll tell your joke on the air. How does it go? I don't get it. Why would a cheetah do that? <laughs> okay, that is pretty funny, but we'd lose our license. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Lily Tyson. 
Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ethan Hawke. For show pages, articles, and selfies of the Faith Middleton Show staff with King Kong, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, show New Yorker writer Maria Konnikova on the three-day work week. And now... Back to Colin. Just a couple of additions and amplifications. Yeah, Maria Konnikova will be the super guest uh, on the Scramble on Monday. She'll pick three topics to talk about. We're pretty sure one of them will be the three-day work week, which she's just written about, the idea that we would be more creative, creative, productive, and happy if we work three days for more hours and into our 70s. Uh, but uh, we're doing other things the other four days. Also, uh, Lily Tyson, our excellent intern, is uh, having her last day here today. I think her birthday was also yesterday. We've had uh, this group of interns uh, this summer who I refer to as the Fab Five. Uh, they are, uh, uh, it's kind of a nice e- even distribution of talent and initiative. This has been an exciting intern class to work with. So now we'll be down to Fab Four, and I am sad about that. All right, uh, time for uh, endorsements. I've tried to leave plenty of time. So, uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, you get to go first. All right, I have to do the one that's related to work first. Okay. October 21st, we have Mark My Words coming, which is um, based around the musical Wicked. So we have Gregory, Gregory Maguire, who wrote the book, Stephen Schwartz, who did the musical itself. They will be on stage in conversation with Frank Rizzo. Um, you can go to twainmarkmywords.com. And also, uh, with my recent experiences, breaking my ankle at six months pregnant and then having the baby early and her being in the NICU, um, I know there's lots of arguments around health care and Obamacare and all of those things. And I think what gets obscured in that sometimes is are, are the folks that really provide that on-the-ground um, care. So I just want to say that you should go and appreciate your... Uh, providers, the the nurses over at the CCMC NICU, the folks at Hartford Hospital were wonderful to us. And so I just think that uh, remembering that is a good thing. Let's also endorse together this uh, video that you sent uh, over to all of us. At least you and I can endorse this together. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. It's about a French supermarket chain, Intermarché, yeah. uh, who uh, got sort of interested in the whole question of all the fruits and vegetables that get thrown the, out. The ugly fruits and vegetables. Right. So they actually, you can see it. If, if you Google Inglorious fruits and vegetables. You will probably be able to get that video pretty quickly. It's a campaign they started basically to get people to think differently about this and maybe price some of the ugly and less appetizing fruits and vegetables, less appetizing looking fruits and vegetables differently. And it's been this huge hit. So, um, and it really sort of does uh, call to mind the amount of food that gets wasted. And it's just, it's a fascinating thing to watch. So, inglorious fruits and vegetables, courtesy of the French supermarket chain Intermarché. Uh, all right, James? I thought that was fantastic, too, so I'd co-endorse that as well. Um, uh, Just a big event coming up at Sydney Studio starting next Friday, uh, the 15th, I think, is Martin Scorsese has restored some of the masterpieces of Polish cinema. Uh, We have 16 of them that we'll be showing, one per day and on matinees, separate films. These are extraordinary films that are really amazing to the history of cinema, but also about Poland, about the talent of the filmmakers, absolutely stunning films, beautifully restored, and uh, they have not been seen, most of them, for many years. Uh, these are restorations that are touring the country and uh, not playing very many places. So we have two weeks of those films, really not to be missed. A, quite a, a, a amazing occasion starting next Friday. And having seen the Polish movie Ida there uh, at, your, at your shop... Uh, that gets you even more excited about the potential. Uh-huh. Oh, that's not one of the Scorsese ones, but it was great. Uh, I think you do say Ida. They say Ida. Ida is Ida, the yeah. yes. Uh, although the um, the the publicity of the film kept saying Ida, 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 which I think, <laughs> I think they were trying to get us to think that they yeah. get the public to think it wasn't a foreign film. Maybe. Absolutely, I'm not sure. All right, Mark, what have you got? You want two or one? 
Uh, you can do two. You do two? All yeah. right. So, all right. Uh, so the first is um, my daughter, my oldest daughter went off to summer camp this summer. She went up to Camp Ramah in Palmer, Massachusetts, where they send home a letter that says not only is your child not allowed to bring electronics, but in the past, parents have tried to sneak cell phones into their kids' bags, <laughs> oh telling them, don't tell anyone. It's just for an emergency. If you do that as a parent, we will spank your child. No, I don't, I don't remember what, but it, the, the insistence with which they said this is a time for your child to be technology free was really, really admirable. What if they, they see a see monkey it. and the monkey wants to take a selfie and they don't have a camera? Monkeys have no may cell take phone. selfies, but not on Saturday when right. you don't use electronics at this camp. So that's the first one. And the second is um, the great essayist Ellen Willis, who was the first yes. uh, rock critic for the, for the New Yorker. She also was a founder of Red Stockings, the radical feminist collective, and also just a, an essayist on all sorts of random odd things, totally unpredictable. Just when you think you knew what she would say. She would come back with something unconventional that would discomfort all of her friends. There's a new collection called The Essential Ellen Willis out from University of Minnesota Press. I've been reading these essays, and they're just the best things ever. And if you like the art of the personal essay or the political essay, you have to discover or rediscover um, this Ellen Willis collection. All right. And tonight uh, at um, Billings Forge, I will be performing uh, for the third time in my life with the, the improv troupe uh, CT Improv. Um, I urge you to come. It's at 8 o'clock. It's a very cheap ticket. Do not bring your children, all right? Get a sitter for your children. Don't spank your children, but don't bring your children to this. I am going to use terrible language. I'm going to talk about things that you have not yet discussed with your children. So don't bring your children. I can't emphasize that enough because people often do show up at these wholesome CT improv things <laughs> with their children. I don't want to see children there. But it really they are wonderful. I, I'm part of the joy of doing this. Uh, I do a series of monologues based on um, – prompts from the audience or from whatever. And a lot of the fun is then seeing what the CT Improv Troupe does with the monologue that I've done. So um, when uh, Tracy was uh, sending us the thing about um, about inglorious fruits and vegetables, that kind of triggered uh, a trip over to Slate where there was an article about plums and uh, and William Carlos Williams' poem came up. And so I'm, the last thing I'm going to endorse, and I think I have maybe time to read, is A Late Obad by Richard Wilbur. Uh, you could be sitting now in a carol, turning some liver-spotted page, or rising in an elevator cage towards ladies' apparel. You could be planting a raucous bed of salvia in rubber gloves, or lunching through a screed of someone's loves with pitying head, or making some unhappy set or heel, or listening to a bleak lecture on Schoenberg's serial technique. Isn't this better? Think of all the time you are not wasting and would not care to waste. Such things, thank God, not being to your taste. Think what a lot of time by woman's reckoning you've saved and so may spend on this, who had you who had rather lie in bed and kiss than anything. It's almost noon, you say? If so, time flies, and I need not rehearse the rosebud's theme of centuries of verse. If you must go, wait for a while, then slip downstairs and bring us up some chilled white wine and some blue cheese and crackers and some fine ruddy-skinned pears. So have some ruddy-skinned pears this weekend and uh, go to a nice movie at Trinity Cine Studio and then go to the Mark Twain house and read one of uh, Mark Oppenheimer's e-books. He just wrote one during the show. And uh, thanks to all of you for being here today. I'm Kyone Wolf. I have no idea what to say for the last word today. Do you have any ideas, monkey? Monkey, this is a family radio show. <laughs>